I didn't hear his like echoing voice. Oh, uh, he 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 came in. I heard. Okay. I'll it, uh, you. it makes me sick in my spirit. Um. So, uh, by the time you'll be hearing this, uh, everyone, uh, Donald Trump will be dead. Uh, so- Requiescat in pace, Donald Trump, dead from hunting parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to say this episode's genre is parody satire. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we... The entire um, episode is in Minecraft. We're actually recording this in Minecraft. Yeah, we're uh, we're making yeah. a big uh, we're making a big wooden house in Minecraft, and then we're putting a sign in that wooden house, and it says parody satire, and then we're gonna set the house yeah. on fire. You know those um, well those guys who built a CPU inside Minecraft, and then they used that CPU to run Dwarf Fortress. So inside that instance of Dwarf Fortress, we built another CPU, and we're running Fortnite. And that's where we're recording this episode. Yeah. So, uh, so they're gonna, safe. They're gonna tell us that that he's not dead. He's dead. He died. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He he passed he's, away. He is. Uh, he joined the choir invisible. He. Uh, so, um, for anyone who hasn't been following the news, which I can't imagine is going to be too many people listening to this. I, I don't think we have a huge listenership of people who bury their heads in the sand. Um, also, like, how do you look away when they project it directly into your cornea? Yeah, it's it's hard to do that. It, it's tough when the dude who is almost single-handedly responsible for 209,000 dead people just from COVID, not counting any of the other things that he's done, just COVID, then gets COVID. Um, hard to ignore that. Uh, it's also hard to ignore when he passes away. He's he's dead. He's dead, folks. He died. They're telling us he's not dead. He's dead. I mean, you trust them. Okay, so it's like it's an epistemological crisis, right? Because all of the faculties that are supposed to report to you about his state of existence are completely untrustworthy, right? So I think the question is not whether... Trump is alive or dead, but how would you know? It's like Schrodinger's Trump in a certain way. Except the box is like our existence Mm -hmm. and we are also, the scientist conducting the experiment is also being constantly electrocuted. And the... No reason. uh, uh, the, The nuclear isotope obviously is COVID. That oh, one's yeah. that one's obvious. That's that's an easy switcheroo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You can't know without opening the box whether Trump has COVID or not. Yeah, and it's like even putting his like state of life aside. So much of this was it feels orchestrated um, in so many ways to make like postmodernists have a fit. Yeah. Like, I think <laughs> when I broke, when I like broke down, when I actually saw the Walter Reed Army Medical Center for the first time, like it looks like an 18th century mansion. Um, it looks like someone dove into Michel Foucault's head and 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 asked him to draw them an asylum. 
it's like Charlie Kaufman wrote all of this. It's just too, it's too on the nose. So I, I kind of like had a had an overdose of signifier and signified and meanings and theory and just you know hyper real overdose, and I had to just take a break. It was it was all too much. It just yeah, kept that- happening, like. It doesn't help that the building was made in 1909, so like the the sort of design idiom for like major medical centers was exactly the kind of asylum that like Foucault would talk about. Um, yeah. So it it it's very like quite literally it's that it's um and we get obviously and we've gotten a lot better in the Western world of being more critical of Foucault is sort of elaborations on the prison nature of various structures by adding you know an invisible asterisk that says that he was embedded in a western context and he's commenting primarily on western uh hierarchical structures that you know if you bring this into say um non-colonial like african social structures or like indigenous structures his critiques fall apart but that's that's fine because ultimately they were from so long as you know where they were coming out of and what they're commenting on, they do generally tend to work. And in, in this specific instance, they work to such an insane degree that you feel like you're breaking down or that like you're trapped in a Sartorian novel. Like I feel like I am in nausea or no exit. Um, and for me, it's like, I cannot leave. (laughs) There's no, there's no exit, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think for me, it's like a president who is more a celebrity than a politician who has various unexplained but probably overhyped connections with Russia and is hanging on the brink of life and death. It's just a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah. Like, or a short story. I know that we've mentioned him so many times, but I think... As we move deeper into the insanity called our existence, Philip K. Dick's novels become more and more accurate. And that's not a good thing, folks. That's not a that's not a trend that you want your existence to undergo. Um, he literally, like in Vallis, is literally like a fake president put in place <laughs> by the communists, who is between life and death. Like that's literally the fucking plot. Um, it's, it's absurd. And I think for me, the last, the last straw came last night when he went back to the White House and the internet was flooded with analysis of his bodily gestures of breathing. Right? Like he's, he's standing there. Yeah. You've probably all seen the clips. Like he's standing there and he's visibly in pain. As he is inhaling and exhaling, and everybody's having this like public feeding frenzy over these images, analyzing every single thing. Oh, it's not actually no, he's like suppressing a cough. No, it's it hurts when he breathes. Oh, he's about to pass out. Oh, it's the steroids. Like everybody is looking at Trump's body, analyzing it as it stands a spectacle, right? On a balcony. And trying to almost divine reality from how he stands and his facial expression. 
it reminds me of the philosophical problem, the, um, so a, a deep-seated problem in epistemology, and one of the reasons why certain philosophers sort of refer to epistemology as one of the more fundamental uh, realms of philosophy, especially the more that we learn about the brain and cognition, is this notion that like we don't have direct access to reality. We ha- it comes mm-hmm. through the veil of our senses, and our senses are a limited range of all the data that's in the world, like light exists both above and below what we can see temperatures go above and below what the human body can really differentiate like once it gets to a certain level of cold you can't comfortably tell the difference between you know negative 270 kelvin and negative 200 kelvin your body it's like it's fucking cold i don't know um (laughs) and then within that we have you know how well does the brain differentiate even the senses that it can integrate and then for cognition, how well can we put the pieces together that we've been given? Like maybe you have all the sense information, but maybe you can't assemble it as well. And, you know, that's where issues like dementia and Alzheimer's become uh, really existentially terrifying because it's specifically the breakdown of your sensorum and of your sentience. Um, so on on a certain level, epistemology becomes almost the fundamental philosophy because it's the question of how can we interpret the validity of information that we're given even something as fundamental as is what i'm looking at real and this is we've talked about this before actually gareth and i this is one of the fundamental insights that hopefully you get from a psychedelic experience is the notion of how slippery even your fundamental senses are It's not that when you see a talking lion that the talking lion is telling you the truth. It's that you know the talking lion isn't real and you can carry that into other spaces and it adds that question mark to to everything. Mm -hmm. And also if you've had psychotic episodes, which I've had before, if you have severe depression or anxiety and the way that can warp reality, if you've had manic fits, any number of things, you, you know how loose our grip is on the world around us and uh i bring all this up because seeing people whip themselves into a frenzy over a 10 second clip of the president gawping like a fish on a balcony made me feel like i was going insane (laughs) it was it was like people analyzing a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a still image from a video of an event that may or may not have been staged and the insane and frustrating part is we have to do that because this is so potentially momentous and we're given no other information that's more trustworthy. And I think it's not it, when I when I talk about these questions of epistemological issues with unmediated knowledge and so on, it's a really complex topic um, and also one where philosophy and Cognitive sciences overlap, which complicates it even more. Um, but there's actually power in going back to early renditions of this issue um, because they don't have that complexity and they speak in more you know, common language. And, and I think one of the most powerful discussions about these, these problems of perception is actually uh, done by Francis Bacon in the 17th century. He wrote a really important um, 
essay called Novum Organum, which was all about the scientific method. That's basically where we get the scientific method. Um, but it has this really long and powerful discussion of the idols, right? the four idols of the human mind, which prevent it from perceiving reality um, as it is. And we'll break that down in a sec. And these are like categories of fallacies and like blind spots and so on in the human mind. And one of them, and one of the most interesting ones, is what's called the idols of the market. Um, and that's where of these preconceptions and ideas that come to us because we are used to experiencing reality through commerce, right? through a give and take. And, and just like you said about Foucault, if you try to apply any of this to societies that didn't grow with a conception of commerce, it all breaks down and therefore, like Bacon's universalist aspirations are ridiculous. But when you look at it as a subsection, analyzing, I don't know, let's say, English society in the 17th century, or the capitalism that was then created out of it and took over the entirety of Western society, it becomes a lot more um, becomes a lot more interesting and, and relevant. And what 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 Bacon says here is that these idols are derived as if from the mutual agreement and association of the human race, which I call idols of the market on account of men's commerce and partnerships. For men associate through conversation, but words are applied accordingly to the capacity of ordinary people. Therefore, shoddy and inept application of words lay siege to the intellect in wondrous ways. So, like the ways that we use terms and words from these ideas of barter and commerce and interchange inherently flaw our perception of reality. Now, why is this relevant here? Trump is the biggest idol of the market of the of them all, right? He's a person who sees everything as a negotiation, as a deal, as a trade. And in many ways, he is an idol conjured up by our own perception of reality and politics as a bargain. So now that Trump is on the decline, all of the people who are in his opposition, whether like Joe Biden liberals and you know, anarchists just waiting for the race war to start so they can kill Proud Boys. All of these people are like, aha, we've got him where we want him. He's weak, right? He's he's vulnerable. They can only conceptualize this event in terms of leverage and maneuvering and strategy and tactics and all that stuff. But let me maybe blow your mind. I hope not, or like say something new. This is bad for everyone, every single person, because there is no trade, there is no negotiation, there is no deal. Reality and politics and power are not a fucking deal in the market where if you catch the other guy in a lie or their product is insufficiently um, of insufficient quality, you can drive the price down. If Donald Trump is in fact dead or will die in Minecraft, parody satire, it will be fucking Chaos. No one can know where the chips will fall. Like, that's what was driving me crazy with this analysis. Oh, he's close to death. If he's close to death, then Joe Biden can gather like 50 more votes here, or we can negotiate this law, or we can do this thing. Oh, guys, no one knows or can know what will happen if Donald Trump dies. 
or is already dead. It's like a complete unknowable. Now, first instinct, one last thing, I know I'm ranting, but the, the, <laughs> our, first in, our first instinct is like, how do we make sense of this? How do we order this? How do we lay out the pieces on the board and understand what happens when the king dies? It's not how it works. It's inherently unknowable. This also leads to a funny thing about American politics in specific. So we have a lot of, um, it, it's very common in the West in general, not just America, but in Europe to sort of universalize our political experience and assume that this is somehow steady across the board when we, we see innumerable times that this is beyond untrue. But one of the funny things about this is especially in America, our own self-perception of how our political machine works is sometimes woefully inaccurate and not always in ways that are in bad faith. Like, say, for instance, when we see the outcry against the police executing black bodies in America, and our first thought is they should go to jail because that's illegal. We then brutally find out that in many cases, this is not illegal. It's wrong. It's morally disgusting. It's disturbing beyond measure, but it's not illegal. And so these people cannot be punished through the legal system. Now, this makes sense because if the police who are enforcers of a legal system could then be held accountable by that legal system, they'd have less power. And of course, they're going to leverage their power to be above the, these own systems. That's a tale as old as the Praetorian Guard. That's beyond not new. It's sort of like if the military is the one that holds the military accountable when they do war crimes, you can guarantee a fuckload of war crimes because they're just not going to do that. Because if I hold you accountable today, you might hold me accountable tomorrow. So we're all going to let each other off the hook. Similarly, this gets, to, this gets to funny things. We assume that when the president dies, the vice president takes over. We've had numerous instances of this. But funny thing, that assumption of power isn't in the Constitution. It was kind of hinted at in the Constitution, but the first instance where it happened was when William Henry Harrison died in the 1800s. He, he's the president who famously got pneumonia and died within 31 days of being sworn in. And then John Tyler, who was his vice president, became the president. But there was like a two-week window, or one or two-week window, where there was a president pro tempore of the Senate basically took over and they were like, what the fuck do we do? Like, no president <laughs> has died in office before. What the fuck do we do? And they just sort of decide, they pitched, like, what if the vice president became the president? I can kind of see an argument in the Constitution. They ran it by the Supreme Court. And I forget who the Supreme Justice was, but it was like the super big one who was like the early Supreme Court justice who handled like a majority of like early... um political disputes like that of like how do we run the country's like 20 years old and we don't know how this is supposed to work and he'd be like uh do this and so he basically went uh he's the president and they were like okay but and there's it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that of like the constitution doesn't say so you figure something out on the fly technically speaking in any other circumstance that would be a good thing because that's precisely the kind of mobility and flexibility that you'd want a governmental structure to have because 
again, one of the big negative things about America is we're the oldest constitutional democracy in the world, but not, this doesn't mean that we've been doing it longest. This means that we have updated our constitution least often. Literally every other country that's a constitutional democracy has redrafted their constitution at least once since becoming a constitutional democracy. America famously never has. So we're stuck with mechanics that people in the 1700s thought up. And even assuming that they were good in the 1700s, they weren't really, no one seriously thinks that they were. Even assuming that they were good, why would they remain good? Especially when we get problems like this. Now, what this leads to is it's assumed that if, if Trump dies, Pence will become the president. We've had numerous instances even in the 20th century, or not numerous, we have one instance in the 20th century of that happening. Two, actually, because FDR died as well. Um, but, but the big thing isn't who will become the president from now until January 20th. The question is, if he dies during an election, who becomes the president on the bill? Especially because votes have already happened. Who did you vote for if the man you voted for dies? And this is where the assumption is the vice president on that ticket would become the president of that ticket. But the funny thing is presidential tickets aren't in the Constitution. The Constitution talks about people being voted on, not parties. And the tickets function on a party system. So the Republican Party could go, well, we're putting Pence forward. but we. We've actually never had someone die during a presidential election who was a serious contender for president. So that's where it's like, we actually don't know what would happen there. We can assume what would happen, but we don't know. And there's no structure that guarantees that what we assume will be what occurs. Totally. And I think if you go one step further, this goes back to what we talked about a few episodes ago with like the Alan Sulkin conception of how politics works, um, that it's a it's a functioning body, right? Okay, they don't know what to do. They don't have a, a precedent, but you could say, yeah, but they're like smart guys who make decisions on a rational basis and they'll all like put their heads together and solve it, except that doesn't work at all, ever in any political system, it's never like a rationalizing force that comes in and says, hey, this is what we should do. No, no, should it be um, in all in like 100% of the time? I'm not saying that like this rational, technocratic, objective government is, is the way to go. But you need to embrace the fact that if they have no idea what they're doing. It won't be decided by a well-regulated or well-planned out mechanic. It's not just that they don't have a precedent or they don't have rules telling them what to do. Going back to the epistemological part of it, they don't have rules for how to know what to do. That was my point with the idols, right? When they sit down to have a discussion about what they should do, they are they are already tainted by preconceptions and biases that they have as people. Right? So when they come to discuss the problem of um, being dead, they will do it in a chaotic, all-hungry, random, completely arbitrary way. Um, which brings me to this really interesting idea that if like, I don't bring up in this discussion, they'll rescind my history BA, um, <laughs> which is this really important text called The King's Two Bodies, 
was published in 1957 by Ernest uh, Kantorovich. I should be able to pronounce that name since it seems Eastern European in uh, in, in root. Um, and it's like this super seminal book about the idea that in the uh, Middle Ages, in the medieval period, there was a parallelism between the king's natural body, that is like the corporeal body of the king, and the body politic, that is the body of the state. And these two ideas had a lot of tension and power between them. For example, it focuses mostly on England, even though it also talks about France and other places. Um, The king was perceived as the head of the state. Parliament was perceived as the body. And they would go so far as to say that when the king is angry, it's like having a fever the same thing like the king becomes agitated and then the body shuts down becomes weak because it needs to fight the fever right um so it went beyond just the story and also became really powerful metaphor and a mechanism for um, people to understand politics now the, the the book is problematic like its methodology is outdated and it comes to all sorts of like conclusions that aren't really supported by fact, but it's still a very, very important study in this um, idea of uh, biopower, like politics and its interaction with bodies. One of the main ideas in these interactions that we also inherited through Victorian society, right, um, that is the main source of our knowledge about the Middle Ages in many ways, um, is that like the body, has a homeostasis, a natural state of balance, so too the political body. Right? Everything can be understood as checks and balances. Sounds familiar? Um, uh, uh, biles balancing themselves, power going from one place to the other, pneumatics, fluids flowing and, and coming to some sort of balance. The problem with that is that it's nonsense. Um, <laughs> or even worse than nonsense, it's nefarious. And that's where we circle back to Foucault, right? Who showed in, in both of the clinic and discipline and punish and other really important um, research that there's nothing objective about our studies of the body. There's nothing objective in the way that we understand flesh, right? Like homosexuality was a disease, still is considered a disease by many, but was a disease in scholarly medical journals, a disease that was associated with communism and leftism and feminism and um, radicalism and a bunch of other things as bodily illnesses that have political ramifications. And just in case some people want to say, yeah, but that was then, that was like 19th century or early 20th. It's not really relevant today. All you need to do is log on to Twitter and see those people analyzing Trump's every movement. It's the same thing. The conceptualization of politics is tied inherently to physical questions like the health of the president, how his body is behaving, what is his future, his corporeal future is inherently tied into how they see the political future of America will regulate itself. The virus will be excised. I'll, I've actually heard like a CNN pundit say, the white cells, the white blood cells will attack the disease in Congress and cure it. 
like these terms are still really, really, really helpful. Last example, and then I'll shut up. Um, this whole idea with masks, right? One of the one of the main um, arguments used by anti-maskers is that it takes the breath from our bodies. It steals our breath, and that is so interesting because if I had told you that like a 300 BC Greek doctor had said that, it would have fit right in. This idea of the breath having something essential, something animating, something um, inherently healthy or unhealthy, that's a belief that lasted for like thousand years, even more. And now it's making a comeback. What's interesting is that it's a political point. Democrats want us to die by taking the breath away from us. We will not let them um, take our breath from us. We will not let them regulate our breath. And at the end of things, tie that back to I can't breathe. Yeah, One we... of the Black Lives Matter rallying cry, right? And this battle for how will we conceptualize Breath itself has become a political term because our conceptions of the body and politics are so tied together. There's this phrenological impulse that we seem to not be able to shirk. Um, and it, it's a question of mapping. It gets back to the question of epistemology. We, it's a frustrating aspect of the human mind. Um, it's just something that that we're baked into, that we tend not to understand things on their own terms all that well. And this is primarily because most of the way that the human brain works is associative. When we know a field, when we've experienced a field, we can understand it in an intuitive sense that is almost prelingual. Like, you don't necessarily have terms for how a fever feels and how to respond, but you know it. You know it bodily and you know the actions. Uh, this it's a, a secondary problem, which is that we sometimes associate the language around an experience with the experience, when instead, more often than not, we already know the experience of having a feeling that you don't have words for, or feeling something for someone that you don't know how to articulate, which sort of hits at the fact that there are things that language is a secondary act of our minds. It's a thing that we use to communicate, but it isn't always the thing that comes natural. This is also bound up weirdly in the same thing that's been floating around the internet uh, recently that um, a lot of people tended not to know, which is that not everyone thinks in words. Um, yeah. If you, which which is a fascinating thing. If you, I, I happen to think in words, and so that was fascinating when I first heard that. I mean, it makes sense to a certain degree. You think with some kind of sensory relation. And sometimes that's auditory, like thinking in words, and other times it's thinking in feelings or in images or things like that. But the problem that this can bring up sometimes is that we naturally want to map things we know onto things we don't know so that we can then get insights of like, oh, wherever they overlap, now I can understand this better. And the problem is this can generate insights that are not really there. A classic example is in the left, it's been a contentious thing about whether it is fascist to like astrology or feminist to like astrology or indigenous to like astrology. <laughs> this is kind of a ridiculous question. It can be either one. It depends on how you're doing it, not that you're doing it. Like, it's one of those things where you need a lot more information than just 
do you like astrology to be able to answer that? Because for some people, it'll skew one way. For others, it'll skew another. But the argument that astrology is fascist gets misunderstood by a lot of people because it gets presented in bad faith by people who just don't give a shit about the people they're talking to. Another big problem that we've talked about, about the left in general of like, you have to communicate with people. You can't just say things at them. Um, but where it comes from is an essay by Adorno called The Stars Down on Earth, or The Stars Look Down on Earth. I forget the exact name. Um, and he basically draws the connection between astrology as we understand it and phrenology of you're looking for patterns in something that don't relate to the thing that you want insight about. And this can lead you to draw insights that aren't true and become bioessentialist. And you can then become overly rigid in, well, no, this method gave me that insight, so therefore it's true. And then become resistant to information that it's not. Like, no, you're a Sagittarius, so you're combative. And it's like, well, they're really compassionate. And it's like, well, okay, well, I can explain that with their rising sign. And it's like, at that point, are you explaining it or are you just sort of cycling through whenever, you know, whenever one mask doesn't fit, you try another? Now, granted, that critique can be applied to a great number of things. And that's the better way to understand that essay is it's not necessarily purely about astrology. It, it's more a general critique of, of that epistemological problem. When we map one field of information we know onto one that we don't know, in good faith. We're, we're not doing that to fuck with people. We're doing that because we think it will give us insight. This applies also to like free market libertarian types. A lot of them aren't doing that because they're lying, because they're trying to take advantage of people. There are people who do that, but there are many who do it because they sincerely believe this field doesn't make sense to me. I want to understand it because I know it has power and this feels like it will give me insight. At the end of the day, this all boils down to phrenology in a certain way, of looking at the shape of someone's skull and going, you have a bump there, so you're a criminal. Um, when maybe, but also maybe not, like it's not that the opposite is true, it's that there's no clear relation between these two things whatsoever. We have people staring at a video of the president gawping on a balcony and spinning increasingly insane tales that are more or less the same as the Eric Garland, it's time for some game theory thread about Russiagate. <laughs> but because it's like, well, I'm not Eric Garland. So when I do it, it's good and it's smart and it's insightful. And it's like, but again, we hit that secondary frustration that, that I mentioned earlier. We're doing this because we can't trust the information that we are being given that would keep us from doing this. And we know that whether he lives or whether he dies, this is momentous. And we want to be prepared for whichever one of those two very momentous outcomes can potentially come in the void where we can't trust whatever we're told. It's a fucking shit show. Basically, I think my last thought on this, maybe we can do some music. Is... <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, the stars down to earth is one of my favorite things ever written. Actually, the story of why it was written is hilarious. Are you are you aware of the anecdote around its writing? I, I've heard it, but it's, it's worth sharing. Um, yeah, so Ad Adorno basically escaped to the U.S. Right, um, 
uh, as part of escaping from Europe because I don't know if you know, but the 40s were a bad time to be in Europe. <laughs> um, and he found himself in Los Angeles um, and he needed to study English because that was back in the day where not everybody, even important ac- academics, had like good English. Um, so he wanted something written in English, which wasn't, you know, kids' books, but wasn't very high register. And what he landed on was horoscopes. Um, so he started reading horoscopes and news- trashy newspapers of like the Los Angeles of the 50s and the 60s. And that's where he started thinking about this idea of why do people who live inside of a rationalized or rationalizing way of life, how can they, psychologically, how can they square that up with believing in astrology? Um, And I think what I like the most about the essay is, like you said, it's solution agnostic. It's not about what's true. It's about how we come to define what is true. And the reason it's called the stars down to earth is that the bottom line is that people would like an uncaring universe made up of giant balls of gas burning away in an infinitely complex and massive universe to be down to earth, to be impactful on their lives, to be intelligible, to obey a set of rules that we can um, understand and be experts in. And I think that is really precise because that is also a huge component in what's happening. Explain to me what it means if Trump dies. Give me a play-by-play. Same thing with Eric Garland. What does it mean for Russia to interfere with American politics? Because if you don't explain to me what it means and it's not reducible to players on a board, that's fucking scary. No one knows what happens if Trump dies. That is anxiety-inducing to a massive degree. So I would rather ascribe myself to these rationalizations, even if there's no way for me to verify them, because at least they give me structure. And uh, that's a good time for us to break for some really, truly gross and murky death metal. Um, (laughs) The only real response that we can have to this world. People sometimes uh, wonder why it is that I so frequently say that death metal is the best music and the only music that matters. Um, And it's because uh, look outside and then listen to death metal and tell me that that's not the natural response to the world. so we're, we're going to play something from a band called Crypti um, off of their new record called Nightmare, Trans- uh, Nightmare Traversal. Rather. Uh, Crypti are really fucking wicked group. I, I was put onto them by um, a friend that I, I know on Twitter named uh, Kayak, I think is how you pronounce his name, or, or their name rather. Um, I don't know off the top of my head because I've only seen it written down. But um, brilliant person knows just a shitload about music and constantly throwing great recommendations. And I asked at the end of last year, like, oh, were there any good death metal records that I missed? And they sent me a link to this 19 minute long song by Crypti. And it's just like incredibly murky post-Gorgutzian, like lo-fi, but still like tremendously challenging death metal. I think they pitched it as like if Portal were good and didn't have a fash guitar player. Um, But 
then I find out later. So I, I wind up digging that release. I look, I find their other stuff I listen to. And I'm like, oh, this stuff's great. I find out later that they're the same people that are in Dead Neanderthals, who are like a free improv, free improv and contemporary jazz group who mix in a lot of heavy rock. And most recently, their most recent record was a Death Doom record. And then I also find out these same people are the people in Plague Organ who put out a record called Orphan that I adore. Eden, I think you actually, um, I think you actually showed me, um, Plague Orphan on Facebook, but it, yeah, so they're, they're just, they're just musical wunderkinds. Like they seem to be able to do any kind of genre under the sun. And this happens to be their like murky death metal, uh, project. Um, absolutely adore this record. I'm going to be writing about it a bunch, just a heads up. Cause I'm big, big fan of it. Um, the song that I'm going to play is one called Cryptic Passage, largely because this is one that on Twitter I said has a, a Saint Anger riff in it, which the band responded with, what the fuck did you just say? Um, but my pitch is that Saint Anger, the Metallica record, isn't a bad idea on paper. The idea of Metallica being much more raw after being much more polished works well on paper, and a lot of those ideas work well, but they were not executed that greatly by Metallica. But if you imagine like, what if James sang in key? What if the guitar was a little bit tighter in its uh, tighter in its presentation? What if that fucking snare was turned on? A lot of the songs on St. Anger would be a lot less unpalatable to us. And Crypti at times strike me as that same direction of deep, deep rawness, but executed by people who know exactly what they're doing. But it's executed well. They, like, they nail it. So, here is Cryptic Passage by Crypti off of their record, Nightmare Traversal.
Okay, so that was Crypti with Nightmare Traversal. Again, you're going to be seeing a bunch of writing from me from a, in a bunch of places about that because I love the record. God, I love death metal. And now we're going to talk about no, something that's just about as death metal as it comes. Um, depressing elephants dying. Yeah. So what we want to talk about for our sentence segment is the only harmless great thing by Brooke Bolander, which is a 2018 alternate history novel, but not in the way that you think. It's not like Victorian wizards or whatever, um, but rather an exploration of a lot of things like nuclear power, um, empathy with non-human entities, feminism, labor movements, um, American economy, so on. And it's also one of the most poignant and saddest books that I've ever read. actually made the mistake of reading it while traveling. Um, like I finished it at a hotel, which was not the most uh, supportive environment for what I was feeling once I had finished it. It was in um, Seattle um, on business and, and I had uh, wrapped it up. And yeah, it took me like several hours to recover. I just went outside wandering, just trying to get my thoughts in order. And it's become like one of my favorite things ever. So maybe I'll introduce the premise uh, a bit more and then we can um, discuss it. So actually, I came to this book by an equally important article published in Current Affairs titled we considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. I, Eileen McCrea, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She is a uh, contributing editor to Current Affairs. Um, and she wrote this article about something that is very interesting and has become somewhat of an obsession of mine since then. Basically, how can we warn far future generations about nuclear waste. Think about it. We know now that nuclear waste will be dangerous in 100,000 years. It could be dangerous even after that, depending on what was the active material being used, how it was handled, and so on. How do Gene you... Gene Thacker also has a really good essay about this. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a field that has been growing since the 80s, and, and we'll get to that in a sec. Um, so... I say dangerous, I mean has the potential to wipe life off the face of the earth, right? Like if you mishandle nuclear waste and you get it into a water system, for example, like a, a water table or, an, or a river, it has the potential of killing every single person who will ever drink from that water, including all of the animals that do so as well. So how do you write a warning sign that will be understood by people 100,000 years in the future? And what this article does really well to make this um, problem more tangible is imagine that you're an archaeologist and you go to the Hindu Kush, right? Like one of the places where we have the earliest archaeological evidence of human existence, um, of, of like a big civilization, right? There's this ziggurat or like a palace or a pyramid or something, something important. And you go into this ziggurat, you find a box. On that box, there's a black skull. 
And on the other side of the black skull, there's a screaming human face, like, tearing its flesh. Obviously, this box is, like, a bad thing. Would you open it? The answer is, hell yeah, you would. Think of your career, you think of what you stand to gain, of the knowledge just waiting for you about what the society feared and worshipped. You'd open it. And even though you had no idea what's in the box, and it could have been something terrible, like a, the remnants of a disease or a weapon. Now, the civilization in question is maybe 5,000 years old. And you have absolutely no way of communicating with them. And there's absolutely no reason for you to be afraid of them. We have like modern medicine. It's nonsense. Whatever is in the box, I can handle it. What if it was 100,000 years ago? So the chance of civilizations coming across our refuse, our nuclear waste, and opening it extremely high. They might be technologically advanced and look down upon us, or they might be maybe languages lost to them and they can't understand those signs. How do you do it? Now, the interesting thing is that a group of people called the US fucking government asked this question in the 80s actually founded a task force called the Human Interference Task Force. It was a team of engineers, anthropologists, nuclear physicists, behavioral scientists, and semiotic experts that were convened to answer this question and actually formulate signs, warnings, structures that would um, be effective in communicating the danger of nuclear waste generations in the future. Their premise was 10,000 years, because they didn't really know how long this thing was going to last, um, but the principle is the same. Now, another interesting thing about this um, group is that they opened it up to um, contributions from the academic public in journals and conventions. And a few very interesting people wrote in. One of them was Stanislaw Lem science fiction author, proposed a few ideas. One, the creation of artificial satellites that would transmit information on nuclear waste for millennia uh, from the atmosphere. The other is encoding a mathematical formula into the DNA of flowers, which would reproduce itself around the storage site and hold the message inside of its DNA. And other folks like Thomas Sebweck, who is a, semiot a semiotic expert, he, um, advised an atomic priesthood that would gain political influence and then promulgate the message inside of the religion. Echoes of fallout and the whole thing. Yeah, surprisingly, that one uh, was popular with science fiction writers and shows up fucking everywhere. Nuts, I know. <laughs> yeah, it shows up everywhere. You can think about also uh, Canticle for Leibovitz and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, another idea was... Cats. So we would take cats and we would give them a bioluminescent a genetic mutation. And um, those cats would be fucking weird. That's basically the <laughs> idea. Like you'd come across this repository and suddenly you see glowing cats and it'd be like, wait, 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 wait. This is totally fucked up. What the hell is happening? Um, now this like radiation cats, I'm not joking. That's how it shows up in the documents. Um, would radiate, glow more as they came closer to nuclear waste. And there's this whole... Okay, so here's the thing. I read the transcripts of this 
summit because I wanted to recreate it. Actually, and I might still do that. Um, don't steal my idea, please. Um, Reddit. And it's a mishmash of poetics, architecture, physicists, and a bunch of other stuff. Like Team B of this group, there were two groups, Team B opens with Zimandias by Percy Shelley. Um, the message that they wanted to leave to those people starts with the words, and that's where the Atlantic, the Current Affairs article uh, got its title. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. It's all drowning in this drama and sadness and moroseness. Now, the last detail about this thing is that the U.S. government did none of that shit. In fact, the U.S. government still has, doesn't have, sorry, a central repository of nuclear waste. It's just sitting in a bunch of places in the U.S. Um, they never read this fucking report. They never did any of it. Not even the basic uh, recommendation, which is put it all in one special place. Even that is not correct. So now Bolander takes the idea of the radioactive cats and imagines it with defense. So in her alternate history, we figured out how to communicate with elephants via a sign language in the 1880s. We still consider them to be lower than humans, right? In the future, decades in the future, a scientist is trying to persuade elephants to become radioactive cats, right? to become warnings around nuclear waste. Why? Because elephants have exceptional memory, storytelling capabilities, the ability to hand knowledge down generations. There's just one tiny problem. Humans are fucking assholes. When we come to ask the elephants for this favor, it comes on the back of decades of abuse and horrible crimes and genocide against these elephants, and now we need their help. That's premise. There's a whole other part of it, but I've ranted for long enough. These kinds of stories always strike me in a um, a rather kind of deep place. Um, not just because of the obvious like human-animal treatment, which uh, before anyone gets all worried, no, I'm not a vegan, but uh, I think also you have to be kind of like deliberately daft to not get certain arguments about animal rights. Like you have to deliberately be more annoyed at someone you met at a party once in your twenties, uh, than, you know, being a keen listener in order to like dismiss some of the arguments. Like you can't look at the way that other mammals engage with the world and think like, Oh, um, just, keeping them in pens and slaughtering them for whatever, that's totally fine. That strikes me as weird. And again, not not to comment on indigenous practice, which which is fundamentally different, but, you know. But even outside of that, one of the functions of these kinds of tales of humans communicating with either uplifted animals or animals that we've learned to communicate with function in a way that... Um, They're often a lens for a predominantly white Western world to grapple with how it is treated other people. 
So there's obviously elements of human treatment of animals, but these kinds of stories almost predominantly work. This is admittedly my literary interpretation. This isn't necessarily like embedded deeply within the text, but I feel pretty strongly about it. Um, they're typically a way for for people to get past like the barriers of presumption of of otherness that like you witness say someone of another race or someone of a different ethnic background or someone of a different cultural background sometimes very very deeply so and knowing that this barrier is there but you're both people these stories can get very tricky to navigate in a way that feels respectable and deep precisely because you're dealing with two people people with richness with fullness with with history things like that meanwhile if you can sometimes just displace that otherness onto something that accounts for that otherness some uh something like a talking animal then you can but then you deliberately try to say like this is only a perceptive gap like then you can sometimes skirt around that issue and get at the deeper like well what's the deeper thing that we have in common now obviously that kind of read has a problematic element baked into it which is that you're mapping other real people and real cultures onto talking animals but this can cut either way depending on how it's handled it can sometimes be denigrating of like there's people and there's animals um but another way to read that is that the primary concern is that interior thing that these are thinking, feeling things that experience the world, and it's because I viewed you as other than me that I've never even tried to understand that you think, that you feel, what you think, what you feel. Um, and if that read holds here, it definitely feels more like the latter than the former. It, it reads as tremendously respectful of the the notion that it's not that elephants began to think and feel in the 80s when they learned sign language it's that they have been thinking and feeling for hundreds of thousands of years for you know the entire lifespan of the species and we only just recently or relatively recently uh in the book because it's obviously set after the 80s but the 80s are much closer than the dawn of elephants um that one of the primary conflicts that drives the relation of the human and elephant characters is that humans sometimes act as though the minute that we learned to communicate them was the minute that their thinking and feeling began. And became not worth communicating with. Yes. And so the the notion of being deeply willing, even passively, to be dismissive of like millennia of trauma and even instances in human history where it was non-traumatic where there was you know synchronous relation that was then destroyed by other humans that came in like oh these people actually are able to cohabitate with elephants just fine but then these colonial figures come in and they're like oh shit i'd love that on my wall and just slaughter them in mass and mm -hmm. there are relations obviously of human characters and elephants where the relation is a lot more sympathetic and the humans are a lot more apologetic of the history of humans. And this is where the valence of, of its relation to, to human to human interaction really came out for me. Sometimes the response of elephants being like, 
you being apologetic is meaningful on a personal level, but doesn't fix or change anything that's happened. Like, you can't solace yourself with coming here and telling me, like, I'm so sorry about, you know, all the things that we've done, because if that's the only thing you do, if you only apologize after the fact, then, you know, there's no less death. There's no less suffering. There's just someone telling me they're sorry after it happens. And that's not, that's not good enough. Like, I don't want to become a mutated, irradiated, like, monstrosity to warn off other humans because you've made this problem just because you came here and said that you're sorry. Like, you need to actually fix things. And Bolander also sort of deftly navigating that no one knows what fixing it would, would necessarily look like. That it's not like, oh, if you... Deliberately avoiding, like, the quest narrative of, like, if you do this thing, then we're all on board. Like, it, they they leave it, thankfully, as this, like, this knotted social problem of, like, no, we're going to have to all navigate this together and you might try something and it might not be good enough and you need to be brave enough to go, well, I definitely did sincerely try, but it's also definitely not good enough and that means I need to try again, which is a lot more sensitive than you'd imagine books like this typically going. There's sort of the envisionment of, of a lot of science fiction or fantasy at some point resolving itself to a fairly simple quest that for as complicated as the world might be, so long as you throw the ring into the volcano, it's all fine. Um, and obviously this isn't universally true, but here especially it's the focus is on that very literary relation of two cultures and then figures embedded within those cultures and their relationships with each other. Not, you know, if you go here and retrieve these elephant bones and build a temple, <laughs> them, then we will, but you know, there's nothing silly like that. It's, Eden tried to prep me, pre tried to prep me as best I think as anyone could for like, this book is going to make you ugly cry. Um, uh, I think, I think it, it's, it's interesting because the reason that it makes you ugly cry is, well, first of all, because Bolander is an exceptionally talented writer, right? The prose is, is beautiful and leans to some of the stuff that we said about Zelazny when we talked about him. Like, it's almost poetic yeah. um, in its structure and world choices, but also because of the way that, so like you said, on a shallow level, a shallower book would be, oh, the elephant is a mirror of the human. Right? And then the next level above that is, no, the elephant is its own thing, separate from humanity. But in Bolander's conception, which I think is even deeper than those two levels, is you should aspire to be elephants. How fucking limited a thing is the human? How how much of a lonely thing and the cool thing is the human also how much potential we have to be better right because if it's we're just like wretched of the earth scum of the land animals then that's what we are right and i think that's where a lot of like anti-humanist thing kind of falls like if humans suck and are terrible then humans suck and are terrible it's not a tragedy tragedy comes if humans mostly suck and are terrible also have the potential to 
have empathy and tell stories and put others before themselves. If only we could be as selfless and um, no, if only we could be as selfless as these elephants, we could we could be better beings. So the way that that Bolander achieves this is through like the way that she ties the main human and the main elephant character in the book. And interestingly, both these characters are based on actual events. So the human character is a radium girl. And again, should have maybe started with a content warning. Um, this is like tragic, tragic stuff. I, I can't read like about any of this without crying. It's just terrible. This is yeah. a true story. Um, and if you don't want to hear about terrible stuff, then just turn turn the episode off right now. So, Adium girls were uh, female factory workers, um, early twentieth century. That were what they did is they painted clocks. And these clocks, the whole thing, they were called undark. And um, they glowed in the dark. That was the thing. Like, you woke up in the middle of the night. What time it is? Oh, nice. This clock is glowing in the dark. Whatever. The way that they made it glow in the dark is through a self-luminous paint that used adium. And again, you could say we were unaware. We did not know what radium would do to these women. But that is nonsense. The companies that hired these women knew exactly what would happen to them, which is... Um, this is where it gets horrible. So when you use a brush, you need to uh, give it a fine tip if you're working on something as slim as uh, a clock dial. And the way you do that is with your mouth. You put it in your mouth, you wet it, you suck on it a bit, and then it kind of like becomes pointed. But if that tip has radium on it, you basically get radiation poisoning and radiation exposure. Um, specifically, they suffered from a condition called radium jaw, which involved like bone necrosis, um, blood disease, cancer, um, and a lot more. Of course, when these women tried to sue the companies, they were also exposed to early iterations of the X-ray machine, which didn't help things at all. Um, and they sued these companies, and um, I think that they want damages, but a lot of these women just straight up died. They didn't have the time to sue because they died. Um, so one of the characters in the book is a radium girl. Another character is Topsy the Elephant. You thought this would get brighter. It's not going to get brighter. Um, Topsy the Elephant was a female Asian elephant that was smuggled secretly into the United States because it was she was part of an act, a circus act, in Coney Island that billed her as the first elephant born in America, which was of course a lie. Um, guess what? Elephants don't like to be in circuses. They don't like to be kept in horrible conditions. And Topsy attacked her handlers um, several times. Um, her handler, a circus goer, and she was an unruly beast, quote unquote. Um, and then in 
1903, Circus decided to execute Topsy. Um, because they were Circus, they decided to do it publicly. Um, few, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which existed back then, um, actually petitioned against this, against their desire to put her in front of an audience. So they met them halfway, by which I mean they only invited a small crowd of reporters and guests to see Topsy being fed poison, executed, and then strangled. Um, the electrocution was the ultimate cause of her death. She was horribly tortured um, before she died. The thing is, last thing is, um, someone not actually Thomas Edison, as sometimes is erroneously claimed, but someone from the Edison Manufacturing Movie Company was at hand and actually filmed Topsy's execution. And they then sold this film um, to be viewed in like these coin-operated um, kinetoscopes under the title, the crass title, Electrocuting an Elephant. Um, and it is probably credited, it is credited as probably the first film death of an animal in history. So Topsy is the second character in Orlando's book. And Topsy and the Radium Girl, and I, I'm not going to spoil the ending because it's amazing, um, they find each other, they make common cause. So by tying these two characters together and giving them both equal weight, Bolander is able to say, it's not just about the human or the elephant and their superiority or otherness or lack thereof. It's about what these two characters learn from each other, what they unlock in each other, the potentials for action and resistance and warning, right? And pain that these two characters um, give to each other. Um, That sense of tragedy, I think, is the thing that became really overwhelming for me in the book. Not overwhelming necessarily in, in a bad way, just that it um because because obviously there are some there are some certain uplifting elements within the book, uh in the same sense that learning about, say, anti-fascist resistance or queer liberation or things like that become uplifting. But the reckoning with you don't have those those only arise because they have to overcome something that's powerful and seems immovable and the way that this book lingers on that uncomfortable reality which i think is necessary for people um this this is a weird potentially weird and definitely contextual point some people get quickly overwhelmed by how negative um, reality seems to be and can fall into despair. And obviously, this is um, this is horrible. And you know, people need hope or a, or a sense of a path of resistance that can potentially give them salvation in order to carry the burden of that. Totally understand that. But then some people can become overly fixated on that sense of hope to the point where it becomes a kind of delusion that they then also lose track of the real weight 
of these things. This sort of ties at a recurring, a recurring question that people on the left occur of, like, how can you be happy that this person is dead? Or how can you delight in, you know, that, that this is happening? They're a person too. Shouldn't you feel human compassion? And I think we navigate that question fairly poorly because I think there is a good answer to it that involves human compassion and not in the way that you might necessarily think. It's that there are a bunch of invisible steps prior to being glad that someone is dying or that someone is experiencing suffering. And all those invisible steps are where we grapple with the fact that we are not happy with it. Like, are we happy that Trump has COVID? Or would we be more happy that COVID wasn't a significant enough problem that even someone like Trump would get COVID? In one instance, it requires 209,000 dead people in America alone, over a million that will have long-term effects, in order to be happy that this one person is sick. In the other, no one is sick. Obviously, we prefer the other one. But we weren't given that option. He was given that option, and he chose the path where 209,000 are dead, over a million are going to have long-term effects, not counting the families that are impacted by loss. And because we are in that world, now we feel these other things. But it requires that weight. Like, this is where sometimes certain leftists can handle this wrong. You can't purely delight in these things. It's sort of like the necessity for violence on occasion within a political sphere should still be kept with the burden that I would have preferred, like, I would have preferred human slavery not occurred such that killing a slave master was never required. Because exterminating a human life should come with a sense of burden. It should, it should be a weight that you feel. Sometimes it's a weight that becomes necessary, but you should always feel it. Because that's how you know you won't become flippant with it. And the way that Bolander grasped that of like, of ultimately it is a balance. You can't become fixated on that weight because then you'll never be able to do that which is necessary to alleviate that weight in the future. But you can't meaninglessly strike out or be unaware of it just because you feel like you can't handle it. Like I thought, I thought the way that she handled that was just fantastic. And that was the part that really fucked me up when I was reading this. Like there'd be parts where I just have to, it's not a long book at all, but there would be chunks where I would just need to take a break. It reminded me a lot in certain ways, actually, of Tokyo Ueno Station, which is a similar book from last year that just, I'd read maybe like 20 or 30 pages and I'd be like, I'm done for maybe the next like four days. <laughs> yeah, I totally resonate with that. And I think the last component made this book so impactful to me is also how it poignantly stilled what exactly is lost when not an individual dies which is already a horrible thing what happens when a group of people uh, it could be a race or a social group or ethnicity or a religious group or what have you what happens when when they get erased, what exactly is, is lost when we say 209,000 dead, 
just in the US and, and millions suffering, like what exactly did we lose? So obviously we lost like individuals, right? And that we can't minimize that. We also lost stories and the actions and the potentials of those um, individuals. The way that Bolander handles this is with this idea of elephants as storytellers, the carriers of narrative from deep time, like way back, hundreds of thousands of years into the past. And this idea of a matriarchal society, because the elephant society is matriarchal, where stories of longing and companionship and hope and perseverance are handed you know, on the line from mother to daughter over the span of eons, right? And how they distill these meanings um, across these vast, like, temporal distances. Now, the cliche is to say that's actually, that helps with the death of the individual, right? Because the individual can collapse into this communal story just a blink of an eye, right? You were alive for universal half a second, and now it's going to move on. But what Bolander does is say, well, actually, stories are made up of the individuals. The individuals are telling the stories to each other. The mother tells the story to the daughter. And if the daughter dies, the mother dies, the story cannot be told. It's the... It's the individual that tells the story. So when elephants in the book, but also in reality, are abused and executed in horrible ways, that's the first thing that happens. A voice that tells those stories, that makes those stories continue and go on, is lost. The second thing is that the idea of the story, continuity, is exposed as a lie. Like we want to say that Oh, the great chain of being, the great chain of creation moves on. But here is an end. There's a terminus. Here is a place where the thread was severed because this person died. Now, here's not just one end, there are 100,000 ends, 200,000 ends, a million ends, a million joints in the story that are now severed. Um, routine, metaphor, song, cooking recipes, have you, that are now lost, right? They cannot be communicated. Even if they are written or recorded, the individual that would otherwise be telling the story is missing. But what if I told you, comes the narrator, comes Bolander, that it was a choice. It was a choice to let them die. It didn't die in like, asteroid hitting the planet they didn't die from quote-unquote natural causes or old age someone chose for profit for political power out of cruelty to allow them to die to allow those points in the story to be severed it didn't have to be this way and that is the deep tragedy of it it's not the mourning of a person who lived a full life and then passed away in the, I hate the term, in their time, because that's not how death works, but 
got a chance to pass their story on. And they can be 70 and they can be 10 and they can be 90 or 50 or whatever. A chance to take part in this chain. Here, someone chose to sever them. Someone chose to break that connection. And that is the, the deep um, crime that cannot be, as you said correctly, you can't like toss the ring in a volcano. You can't build a temple. You can't find the sword to undo what was done because they're gone link is severed no matter what you do you cannot bring them back and you cannot fix like the irreparable harm was done to the community and that's where like i i'll bring up the book title um only harmless great thing which is actually a quote from john dunn um a poet who we both love deeply recently discovered that it's just another thing in common uh, for me and, and Langdon. And obviously we're not unique in that. John Donne is like one of the most celebrated poets in the history of the English language. Um, but he's still very good. And the only harmless great thing is actually how he describes an elephant in the first song of The Progress of the Soul, his most famous um, books. So, Langdon, unless you have anything to add, um, I'd like to read the stanza. Maybe we can close on that. Yeah, no, no. That sounds like a perfect end. So, this is the 39th stanza of the um, first song. Please don't, like, roast me in the comments if I got the Roman numerals wrong. <laughs> but it goes like this. Nature's great masterpiece, an elephant. The only harmless great thing, the giant of beasts, who thought none had to make him wise, to be just and thankful, off to offend. But nature hath given him no knees to bend, himself he uprops, on himself relies, foe to none, suspects no enemies, still sleeping stood. Vexed not his fantasy black dreams, like an unbent bow, carelessly his sinewy proboscis did remissly lie. John Don's one fucking hell. He's one of those people that you study um, and you. It's easy to be dismissive of like, ah, oh, he's one of the the canon and they're just all a bunch and then you read his work and you're like holy fuck like himself he up props that is fucking delightful yeah looking at the way that he turns words it it yeah he's he's a foundational poet for a reason from and that that's just such like a beautiful description of an elephant that has such keen insight yeah, Jesus, just God damn, it's good. Oh, I love books, Eden. I, lo I love, I love, I <laughs> love books. Shocker, I know. And I also love Enslaved. Um, so <laughs> that's my hard pivot uh, to um, the final song because I, I don't think there's any other. There's no way to top that. That Dunn stanza. Um. So we were talking before. Um, we were trying to decide between um a couple different groups but then there were some where like the record wasn't quite out and we we like to have the songs be for records that are 
either currently out or about to come out. So that way you guys can go out, you know, pick up the music if you dig what you hear. Um, and then for another one, it was a record that we both have heard good things about, but neither one of us have listened to it yet. And so it's like, doesn't seem doesn't seem right to do that yet. Like I'd rather be able to speak knowledgeably on it. Uh, so we're going with the old chestnut of Enslaved. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a huge Enslaved fan. I assume you like them, Eden. They strike me since we agree on nearly everything. I assume that you enjoy Enslaved. No response means that he loves Enslaved. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're, um, yeah, they're a band that I've adored for an incredibly long time. I got into them roundabout when Vertebrae came out. It was maybe a little bit before then. Um, so like mid 2000s. Actually, no, it was when Rune came out because my uh, my friend in high school picked up a copy of Rune because he was my inroads to black metal in general. Um, I'm one of the weirdos who actually prefers basically from this latest period of the band the most. Um, unsurprising i'm a huge prog rock nut and they've basically just turned into a progressive rock band um each record obviously stays heavy metal but there's less and less pure black metal on it um which is a thread that you actually see pretty common across nearly all of the second wave bands um you know isan moved more in a prog rock direction um it's not always prog but you know dark throne moved in a crustier direction uh mayhem even got weird um, so enslaved moving into more and more progressive rock feels it, it, they're basically a perfect band for me because every record feels like they've matured just that little bit more and have gotten a little bit closer to what their true sound is, which involves black metal, but also involves all these other things. Um, the specific song that I'm going to play, I'm picking because I find it so interesting and so keen of this record. It's, um, a song called Uryotun. Um, which has a huge amount of post-punk in it. Like there's a throbbing, like very wiry, as in like the band wire, um, like grinding bass line uh, that again feels more like a post-punk tune, which you wouldn't necessarily associate Enslaved with, especially because they've been getting more into like Genesis and Jethro Tull style, you know, prog rock, which is also super prevalent on here. But it's something they kind of hinted at on their last record where the, the closing song was um, a bonus track, which was a cover of uh, what is what is there to do? I forget the name of the song. It was, it was a Royksop tune that it's a brilliant song, but you wouldn't necessarily have assumed Enslaved would cover. And that seemed to be much more of a decoder ring for this record than I think any of us recognized at the time. Um, because that same combination of like, synth pop and post-punk and alternative music but with this deeply psychedelic and progressive end and then also the dashes of black metal it like it it's both a thrilling song that also feels new for the group like i mentioned this in a uh, in a review of it this record feels less like the closing of their previous chapter which e felt much more like the final record of an arc that started maybe around Riti or maybe a little bit before. And this one feels more like the beginning of this, like a new span. 
that's opened up. And it's just seeing people who'd previously sort of written off the band as they'd gone more and more in a dad prog direction, much to my delight, um, seeing them respond to this record and go like, holy shit, they're back, has been also just a thrill. Because, you know, you, another non-shocking thing, uh, we tend to cover things that we like, and I like when things <laughs> that I like do well. Like, I like when people enjoy music that I love, because that means that the people that are making things that I love are getting more love themselves. It's not just about the money. The money is a real thing because we live in a shit world where money matters. But it's also just like, it's delightful to see things that you treasure being cherished by others as well. And so that's that's just been a beautiful thing with this record. And I think this song, if you've written off Enslaved for the past couple of records, this song might be the one to make you go, oh shit. So this is uh, Enslaved with Eryotun off of their new record, Utgard. <laughs> 